0: This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public programs live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, Berkeley Professor of Psychology and author Charlene Nemeth is joined by CIIS Provost Liz Bevan to discuss the usefulness of dissent and how we can make better decisions by challenging the status quo. This event was recorded on April 4, 2018 in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.
1: Thank you, Charlene, for joining us for what I think is going to be a very interesting conversation I was asked a number of weeks ago um, whether I would be interested in taking up this book, and after I got over smiling at the fact that I know my mother would be highly entertained by the fact that I was given a book called In Defense of Troublemakers, um, I dug into it, and for all of us here and for those of you listening on the podcast, just to give a very, very brief summary because we will pick this up, and Charlene will be able to explain a number of points. It really is, if we look at the the cover, and for those of you out in podcast land, we see a school of fish, little blue fish, all swimming in one direction except for one that is red and it is going in the opposite direction. Yeah, And really, in many ways, what we're going to talk about tonight is the role, the challenges and the opportunities of that red fish. The uh, the voice of question, the voice of dissent, the what if, the maybe um, challenge and what is involved in that. And so that's a very brief summary. We will know a lot more about this within the next hour. Um, but I have found it extremely thought-provoking because we live in an age where we at least superficially are in our why can't we all get along? Let's work together. We value um group process and consensus. And yet you took up this interest in uh, dissent, in challenge to opinion, and in this work, which you describe as deeply personal. So what was it, Charlene, in this question of of the, the little red fish, the dissent, the power of dissent, that first provoked your interest?
2: Oh, that may be a longer story than, well. than you want to hear. <laughs> um. I think when I grew up, it was another era, and um, I'm, I'm trying to think of really the origins of it. I mean, I could tell you the intellectual origins, but if you're asking the more personal origins, that's harder to kind of delve into. But I think it is somewhat relevant that, number one, I was female, and I grew up in the, in the 50s, okay? And I went to—my uh, family was Roman Catholic, and so I was raised in that tradition. And um, I went to uh, an all-girls Catholic school for high school— and uh, I think that was actually very important, because I know even in those days, people thought it's rather old-fashioned to have a girls' school. You should have it integrated you know, with the genders. It could get us to a diversity issue later, if you want. Um, but I often when I reflected back on that, is that if you came in a category um, that in some ways was more restricted... I mean, for me, you see, um, getting along, going along, the sort of thing you're saying that people want, really meant that you had to know your place. Mm -hmm. And you had to have aspirations that were fitting. And in those days, those aspirations were meant to be sufficiently educated to be the wife of a professional man. Mm -hmm. uh, College was somewhat of a luxury, uh, but anything beyond that was suspect. I mean, that's the world I I grew up in. Mm -hmm. In some ways, what a girls' school did, I think, is that I could play varsity volleyball and basketball for four years. I could be president of the National Honor Society. Mm -hmm. You know, I could do all those things. And it was applauded, in a way. Mm -hmm. It was only then when I went to university. And then I realized is that People would think, isn't that great, but then they wouldn't want to go out with you. <laughs> you know, So you found yourself, ironically, in this sort of a fix where... You're trying to fit into things that you don't fully fit into, and I mean, I'm, this is very personal, which I've never, I've, I've never in an interview I, gone into things this personal. But I, th- I think though that it's it's relevant. I remember a dean of of arts and sciences who uh, really befriended me. I ended up uh, taking a math degree, so I was in mathematics initially. Well, well, I took my degree in mathematics, and I remember that. Uh, I would many times worry about going on to graduate school. And I, re- I still remember lines, you know, there's some things people say to you and they stick with you for a lifetime. And I can remember him kind of saying that, you know, you're worried about being too smart, you know, and you, that if you get more educated, you know, somehow, um, you know, no one will love you or something of that sort. And he said, anybody worth you will love you because of who you are. And I remember I said, yeah, both of them in the universe kind of thing. Okay, That, that was sort of the world as I saw it. So to some extent, you see, is that there was always some notion of being an outsider. Even uh, female in mathematics was very odd. So I'd be in a statistics course. It'd be 80 guys and me. And I, I had to keep up my grades for my scholarship. I didn't have a, you know, uh, you know pile of money sitting t- t- to uh, take care of that. And so, you know, and you have aspirations to do well. But it wasn't something that people necessarily valued. It made you a different um and i think there were probably some mixed feelings mostly unstated so i think to some extent that is to some extent a background it's not that i wanted to understand that so much but it gave me a sensitivity about it mm-hmm. and then i think as i went to graduate school i went into social psychology because uh I, you know i had I, I was very uh optimistic i wanted to save the world you know as many of us did at that at that <laughs> age and um um, there was a, a, a lecture in social psychology on brainwashing that particularly interested me mm-hmm. and it's, it made clear to me how we can be such a force for good or for evil with each other but we have a power our opinions have powerful impacts on other people and that became very clear to me and it seemed to me the kind of thing that was worth studying in a way that advanced mathematics didn't have that same pull mm-hmm. okay And so going into um, into psychology, then I was disappointed, frankly. Um, they were studying variables and having scientific pecking orders. And I make a long story short, as I ended up uh, uh, spending a year in, in Oxford doing research. Mm-hmm. Um, it was set up by a professor who wanted me to stay in the field and all of that. But that man was uh, uh, a Polish Jew who spent five years in a prisoner war camp, luckily not a concentration camp lost his whole family in the warsaw uprising and he had a sense of problem so he wasn't spending his time on the minutia of adding up the variables or the pecking order of you know who's more legit than who within psychology Uh, and he understood um the dangers of power and even of consensus he understood the struggles that come from individual human beings. So to some extent, I think there was a, was a merging with backgrounds, who you, who you study with, and then ultimately, it took on an intellectual form, uh, you know, primarily through uh, juries. I've always been interested in law. And uh, in those days, uh, women didn't practice before the bar, although, you know, it's interesting. Years later, I gave the first female first social scientist to give an invited address to the Oregon Bar Association, and there were 1,100 people in the audience. It was huge, okay? There weren't more than 40 women in those days. Now it's completely different. Mm -hmm. But so there's, you know, there is a personal touch to the type of, of things that I've studied.
1: So we bring ourselves to our work, for sure, and you've had Mm -hmm. very direct experience Mm -hmm. of being that one, swimming Mm -hmm. against the tide Mm -hmm. in many Mm -hmm. ways, against conventions, against expectations. Mm -hmm. I've only reflected on it more recently, you know, in the last few
2: years, somehow, I just plough through before then.
1: Well, it's a good thing that you did, because I think in your work here, you are really provoking us to question a lot of what we take for granted in, as you said, in life and business. So um, one of the things that is strong in this book is a look at types of thinking and decisions that are either group decisions or what happens when a dissenting voice enters in. So I wonder if you could just give us a little bit of a picture of sort of consent groupthink as as one process and dissent or that questioning voice as another and what happens to our thinking and processing when we have that opposing voice.
2: I think the bottom line of it is is that for a long time I the traditional way of studying attitude change in social psychology I, I use the term winning, because that's how I think about it. Mm-hmm. They thought, you've been persuasive if you're at A, and I'm at B, and I get you to come toward B, then I've persuaded you. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially winning. Okay. And I began to realize is that, and part of it through the work on juries. Yep. Because with juries, they pay me to consult to help them win. Mm-hmm. But what I really cared about were the appellate issues and having to do with, is this group likely to make the right decision? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I cared about justice, right. in fact, rather than persuasion. Right. There's not a lot of money in justice, by the way. But, <laughs> uh, but I think through some of the early work, what soon became clear to me was that when there was dissent present that maintained itself over time, mm-hmm. the nature of the deliberation changed. Mm-hmm. And that was the beginning insight for what then led to probably two decades of careful minutia of experiments and you know, building up the body of work, much of which is in that book, um, what that whole s- two decades of studies kind of underscored is the notion that when you're faced with consensus or a majority out there okay, you, you tend to assume that truth lies in numbers mm-hmm. and so you're inclined and they, they feel the same way by the way that they've got to be right because they're the many and you've got to be wrong because they're the few mm-hmm. but then you're there like how could I believe or see something so different than them I must be missing something So there's one reason we know why people even straight conform. A second reason is people don't want to stick out like a sore thumb. It's the old adage that the nail that sticks up gets hammered down, Mm -hmm. and you know you're going to get beaten up or vilified if you maintain an opposing position. And that's not just in your head, by the way. I can tell you studies in which uh, that is what happens. So it's not like people are going to clap for you because you stood up. They, They don't. they'll they'll vilify you generally those have been reasons for conformity for a long period of time but what we found in terms of our research is that it does something else is that it changes the way you think about the issue Mm -hmm. so that it isn't just a matter of you know you say a so I say okay fine it's a it's it's more that I start to take your perspective in the way that I look at the issue Mm -hmm. so for example if um you know, if I hear everybody else in my group believes A or, or something of that sort, what happens is is that I engage in what's called convergent thinking, and that means that I start looking at the issue from a much narrower point of view, and it is from their point of view. Mm-hmm. And so things like when, you, when I'm allowed to seek information, I look for information that justifies that consensus position, not my own, but theirs. Uh, I will... Um, um, I will use their strategies in problem solving, and i won't be using ones I would normally use. I mean some of the studies are kind of or fairly i think reasonably clever where you can kind of see that this isn 't something that they're making up is that that's how they're that's how they're thinking. Mm-hmm. whatever form these different studies take you um, things like you pay attention to what they're paying attention to and you don't notice novel solutions, that kind of thing, but it basically means that you're you're thinking with blinders, but they're very specific blinders. They're the blinders of the consensus. And I think part of part of what's going on is that you you want to convince yourself that they're right because it's a much more comfortable position to go along and get along and to convince yourself that, that you, in fact, agree with them. I should also mention, um, we can go into it more if you want, um, it's why it's such an important mechanism for cults. Uh, they understand the power of consensus without challenge. Yep. Okay. Now, if I move to the other side for a second, is that when you have dissent, what happens is is that even if it's wrong, and even if you think they're ridiculous and they're stupid and they don't know what they're doing, and you don't like them anyway, you know, which, uh, which you will feel all those things. I mean, I sound like I'm making fun of it, but I'm not really. It's really seriously what they say is that what happens is though is that that challenge actually opens the mind mm-hmm. so that what happens is, is just to use those same examples is that when you seek information you now seek it on all sides of the issue mm-hmm. on you know this alternative that one you look at the downside as well as the upside mm-hmm. it it's like if you could if you could absolutely train people to do what you wanted them to do that's what you would want them to do for good decision making mm-hmm. That's the kind of things that when Janice talked in group think about the kind of thinking he wanted, yeah. again, it was that kind of thinking. And it turns out that dissent does stimulate that kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. It's the same way like if you use the strategies in problem solving. You don't just use the one that, that they're suggesting or the ones you did alone. You actually are branching out. Right. Uh, and there's even evidence of more originality if, if we go into kind of creativity. I mean, there's some interesting, I think, studies about uh, uh, if you look at originality of thought, is that dissent actually stimulates that. So that the bottom line of it is is that consensus narrows the perspective to theirs, essentially. You do this willingly, so it's like it's self-brainwashing. Mm-hmm. Uh, back to that first lecture. <laughs> Whereas what dissent does is that you engage in what we call divergent thinking. So you take multiple routes, and it does it, so it could be uh, you know, the information you see could be the number of alternatives you consider. It's whether you consider the upside or the downside. But that kind of an opening of the mind occurs as a result of the stimulation of dissent. Mm-hmm. They're not going to get credit for it. Mm-hmm. You're not going to like them for it, but you profit from it. Yeah. That's, the, that's the underlying message of that book.
0: You know?
1: So let's explore that for a moment because this is fascinating. Um, if I were looking at this from an economic or structural point of view, I would say it's in my interests to encourage dissent, mm-hmm. um, <coughs> genuine what you know what you call authentic dissent, mm-hmm. um, because I'm going to have better processes, I'm going to make more informed decisions, I'm going to avoid errors at you know pretty well, and yet you also through all of these experiments in your research you really show how strongly we want to be part of the majority, we want to be part of the group, Um, this sort of pack mentality, and really the deed of courage, of being willing to be the one that, you know, we've all experienced it, shall I say something, shall I just stay quiet, what happens if I say something, and you're very clear, it's not a popular thing to do, so could you describe those sort of social emotional forces around the courage of being the dissenter?
2: It's sort of like if you're wired that way.
1: So whether one uses the, the language
2: of personality, you know, like if there are traits or, you know, orientations, inclinations, and things of that sort, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to go in, into a cellular or, or neurological level, but the principle is still the same as to whether or not there's individual differences mm-hmm. in terms of proclivity. We probably don't know a lot about that, by the way, because it, social psychologists tend to look at the patterns that are general. And it's the personality people that try to look at whether individual types. Uh, I'm often, and I've always been struck by the general power of these of these kinds of findings of influence, because they happen regardless of who the person is. Mm-hmm. I mean, the part that in some ways is scary is that this notion of, well, I go back to the old conformity studies, is that people can be faced with things that, that are, have clear objective reality yeah. and alone they don't make any mistakes these are not ambiguous situations like is this line is equal to that one you go no Is it equal to that yeah you know that type of thing and and yet you know even those very early studies that people forget it was solomon ash's work back, way back when
1: mm-hmm.
2: is that they found that about a third of the time people would abdicate what their own senses told them and they would agree with as few as three people who were in agreement on something different okay And even way back then, there were the seeds of the kind of findings we're talking about here. Because, number one, a lot of people were saying things that what you want to say is that they knew were wrong. Alone, no question, they make zero mistakes. Okay, But that doesn't mean that when they're in the situation that they know what's right and wrong because they don't that shows you the power of other people's opinions. We tend to think we're so independent that we can listen to it and make some rational decision. What we don't fully appreciate is that hearing unchallenged positions by a majority actually changes our notion of reality so that it isn't so clear what's right and what's wrong. It's not like, even all those interviews of those people back in the early studies it's not as though people said, "Look, I knew it wasn't right, but I decided to go with the majority anyway because I just didn't want to stick out. OK? And there are probably some individual differences on that in terms of whether people are comfortable with being different or they really, really need to belong. Very few people did said that though, and there, and even all the other research corroborates that it's not like they know it and they're making uh, uh, simply a decision, is that most of them aren't sure what's right. Mhm. And they're very sure if they're alone. They are not sure, and part of it is back to that notion of how can they all be wrong and I'm right? There must be something I'm missing. Maybe it's the angle. Maybe it's the this. Maybe it's the that. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is people become very confused, mm-hmm. and their way, and given that they believe that truth lies in numbers, in the sense of belonging, uh, tend to orient toward conformity.
1: Well, for me, you know, because it's interesting, there are many experiments in here, and. Uh, this literally being able to be pulled towards a perception of color that is different Mm -hmm. from what i would determine on my own because Mm -hmm. a majority of the group in the experiment says no it's not green it's blue um Mm -hmm. and so so this power of persuasion Mm -hmm. but then i'm i'm really interested in the social emotional forces around the the courage to dissent uh, because, you know, you're very clear, we don't like people who disagree. This is this is scientifically proven that my fear that people are not going to like me, that I'm going to stand out, that I'm going to be uh, receiving the wrath of the group, that's all real. It's not my fantasy. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit more about that, because then I want to ask about how we can develop that. Oh, um. okay. Um. Just to let you know where I'm at least where yeah, I'm yeah, going. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Trouble is, I, I'm starting to do the divergent thinking I'm talking about. Um, yeah, I mean, the the bottom line of it is is that. It does take courage, which is why I winced at the title at first. That was the publisher's decision Mm -hmm. to use the word troublemaker Mm -hmm. because I thought that's not the image I want. I have more the image of kind of courage. Mm -hmm. But they understand sales better than I do. and And so, I mean, what they knew was that it would be catchy. Yep. Um, and uh, and almost everybody, it's interesting when they call or they do interviews, they almost always confess. It's almost like a confessional. They say, I've been a troublemaker myself, and I kind of want to understand it. That's where <laughs> I started you know? tonight. So <laughs> but I think also, much like I think even like with my background, there's something kind of empowering about knowing two different things, and I have to always make the distinction between persuasion and stimulating thought about the issue. A dissenter can actually persuade, they can win, mm-hmm. but how they win is very different than if they have the numbers on their side. I mean, the whole mechanism of how, how they win is very different. Mm-hmm. But it's empowering to know that they can, yes. okay? And, you know, today is what, 50 years after the assassination of Martin Luther King, and it, it again is a reminder of that it only takes one I mean, it has to build to a movement. You got to hope you don't get crucified because it's another story I've been thinking about in the past week, Mm -hmm. you know, with the crucifixion. I mean, I'm not here to say that the dissenters are going to be loved and welcomed. Many of them end up dead, as in those two cases. But nobody can question, you know, uh, centuries later of the impact of some of these individuals who then, you know, it, it isn't just the one lone voice, so it turned into a movement, and that's a that's something that sociologists could speak to better than I could. But it, it is sort of empowering to know, though, that there is, there is impact, and, I, and we can go into it if you want, but there are principles about how they can have impact, namely how they can persuade. Mm-hmm. They're not, but I think it's a separate thing to know that they can stimulate thinking that even if they don't get credit for it, yeah. but that their groups profit. Namely, other people think in open ways. Their groups are making better decisions because of that dissent. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could go through history or even more recent of uh, whether it's um, foreign policy disasters like Janice showed in Group Think, or whether it's uh, mergers and business that were just debacles. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like... That human nature goes over and over and over again of people not wanting to hear dissent, suppressing it, mm-hmm. rushing to judgment, thinking that this person is just a pain in the butt and uh, taking up time and an obstacle to get our goals. So there's many different reasons for it, but the fact is, it is suppressed. So in that context, is that that person who speaks up is taking a risk now? you can't ask them to bear all the burden. I mean, if you're running a company, for example, my pitch, much as you suggested, mm-hmm. is to the top executives, to the leaders. Mm-hmm. And I, in, in fact, it'd be relevant to something else we can talk about later if you want, about I think mechanisms of breaking up there, those kind of, uh, certain kinds of mindsets, is that I often take visiting professorships at places that are gonna be different. going to be a challenge and they usually are very humbling and in 2005 and 6 i i went as a visiting professor to london business school Uh and i wanted to try it out partly partly i was a little bit seduced by the fact that they pay so well and i was getting sick on a berkeley salary you know and london was kind of fun and a little bit different Um, but it was meant to be a challenge because i wanted to speak to a bigger audience than undergrads and graduate students or My own field in academic journals, Mm -hmm. and it was a different kind of um, of a crowd. And um, and if you do executive education and you have executives there, begin to realize you could preach all you want about um, you know we want to hear from everybody and uh, we're so democratic and we're so tolerant. And I mean I say this with a certain sarcasm because I think people really mean well when they say all those things, but they don't do them. You know, they don't walk the walk. And, and so what I was getting at, though, is that for me, what I found is that the pitch mm-hmm. to executives had to be the bottom line. Sure. They did not, no matter what they said, they nothing was going to move them to change policy that came from preaching or from it being right. What matters, if you could say, you know what, that screw-up decision that you made that just cost you a billion dollars— is that if you look at the process by which you made that decision, it was almost a foregone conclusion you're going to not make a good decision. Mm -hmm. Or if you did, it's going to be by luck. Once they realize the costs involved or the benefits, they then listen. And you were exactly right that that has to be the pitch, and it is to the top executives, because otherwise the burden on the individual, like you see whistleblowers, um, is is, is enormous.
1: So, we have a conundrum, because (laughs) in our human nature, um, I think I'm not the only person in the room who wants to be liked, who wants to fit in, who wants to be part of a group. Um, It takes courage, significant courage often, to be that voice that says, wait a minute, what about? I mean, you give examples from our own political history, where if someone had spoken up, maybe different consequences. We know that we get better decisions and better thinking if we have that what you call authentic dissent. So, how do we build that muscle? Practice, okay. in,
2: in part. Uh, you know, I, I, I say that only because um, you know often, often things aren't as bad as we think. You know, we 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 tend to anticipate we're going to fall into a hole and die. And nobody will ever speak to us again, mm-hmm. and maybe fewer of them do (laughs) you know
1: but uh but i might be the one
2: (laughs) (laughs) i mean there are there are costs and there are repercussions but i i think i think number one you i don't know how quite i say this because i i I don't want to say something so general that's that I, i that i don't believe but i think for a lot of people um being able to speak your own voice, I found myself using a, a word from the, the film, actually, of exhaling, mm-hmm. is that sometimes, you know, when people talk about being in these mind-numbing meetings mm-hmm. and all the times in which you're, you're biting your lip, mm-hmm. and you know the guy's doing a self-serving dance on, on you, you know, and if you call him on it, I mean, he's going to hate you for the rest of your life, particularly in academia by the way. <laughs> it, we always think it's in business. It's not. You well know as well as I do uh, in academe. There, you know, it's easier for me to talk about this in a way because I was a tenured full professor when I came here in, in, when I was 35 years old. And people can make you miserable. It doesn't protect you from, from rejection, but it does protect you from being fired So short of moral turpitude, they can't really fire you. They can make you miserable, though, so that you'd want to leave. So it's not a a, – but it's quite different, though. If you're some guy out there working, you know, two jobs and trying to put food on the table and um, you've got a mortgage and you you just don't have any options, um, you can't really afford to annoy the boss if he's the kind who's likely to fire you unless you're in such demand – that you can afford to do that. But many people don't have those luxuries. And so, you know, it, it, it's understandable, and maybe it's too much to ask of someone to always speak up. I think, and I don't think there's a magic answer on this, so don't get me wrong, because I think it could be between a rock and a hard place, and, they're, and the costs are too high. There's a reason, by the way, that I think the statistics are about 70% of people report that they do not speak up when they see a problem at work. Yeah, that high. And they actually report that. So that I mean there are and, and they give you two reasons. They say number one, it's not gonna make any difference. I'm gonna speak up and policies aren't gonna change. The only thing that I can that will happen is is that I'm gonna be on the receiving end of at least grief and possibly getting fired or getting demoted or getting overlooked or whatever. And like, why should I? In in a cost-benefit analysis, it makes no sense to speak up. Then it's easier to kind of put your head down, do what you need to do, um, and follow the crowd. Um, And that makes perfectly good sense. I don't think it makes for good decision-making. I don't think it even makes for, this is going to sound corny, but I'll say it anyway, kind of a quality of life in the workplace. I mean, when you think about it, you spend so many hours of your life in your job and to live one of quiet suffering or not being able to say something that you believe always worrying about who you're going to offend or mm-hmm. or uh you know what's going to come your way and um, kind of finding your way it drives me crazy is you have to find your way through the verbiage of people uh, to try to assess what it is that they want what's going on you know the, the lack of authenticity is sometimes so rampant that you almost are waiting to exhale. That's why I use that word. Um, when you have an honest conversation with somebody, and it doesn't have to be contentious. I mean, that's the irony of this, is that it it can be one that's invigorating and enlightening. It's what we hope to achieve in education. you know.
1: So um, we could continue with this for a long time, this question of how we Develop a culture of consent, and we may come back to it. But there are a couple of other really, um, to me, significant things that you bring up in this. One was this um, picture of the idea and thought bubbles that we tend to to live in, with the idea that like minded draws us. We look for what is familiar and comfortable, um, and with with our modern technology, we are actually able to really filter what comes into our bubble. So could you talk a little bit about that? Because I think we're all experiencing mm. it.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I, I absolutely try. I, I, was, I was, for a moment, I was just reflecting on a moment that I ran across uh, an article today, literally, uh, of somebody who about 10 years ago, picked up s- some of the studies mm-hmm. and was commenting on on how he used Twitter. It was one of these sort of, uh, you know, um, business magazine mm-hmm. kind of things, you know, like Inc. or Fast mm-hmm. Company or something like that. And uh, he was sort of commenting on how we do filter, as you're saying, to the people who already agree with us or who are like us, essentially. Mm-hmm. And he was essentially struck by one of the articles that sort of said, maybe we should have some random people I- you know, in- into our Twitter <laughs> you know, world. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 since I just saw that today, it, 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 it amused me. But I, I think it's true that many of us grew up in, a, in, in an ideological bubble. Mm-hmm. I mean, either it's because of uh, our parents' values, our relatives, uh, their friends, Many of whom shared experiences or perspectives or beliefs. Okay, uh, some of us then even went to um, schools that uh, it isn't that it would necessarily have to be a, a religious school, but it could be one that based on on your your finances, like here in San Francisco, mm-hmm. you know, because it's, they're so expensive. So you're around people from roughly the same social status, and the um, and the same. You know, rather similar kinds of attitudes and goals, okay? You get a sprinkle of diversity. Mm -hmm. But the diversity, we can go back to that, but Mm -hmm. it isn't one of just having white and, and, you know, Caucasian and African-American and Asian-American and et cetera, et cetera. But because they can be very much the same, Mm -hmm. even though the face looks different. Mm -hmm. You know, so that if you look, I, I'm fond of showing my students, for example, a, a picture of the cabinets yes. of uh, Bush, Bush or, of, or Obama. of Obama mm-hmm. or any of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, what you find is that, you know, you get all the so-called diversity, you know, there are different height and weight, and men and women and, and ethnicities and all of this and that and the other thing. But they're ideologically similar. That's how they're picked for their, for their ideological loyalty, they don't want diversity of perspective. You know, they want somebody that's going to be on their page, mm-hmm. and that's so often what happens. But I'm saying, in part, we grow up that way. But there is an affinity. Even all that research on um, how friendships form mm-hmm. is that uh, that old Newcomb study. I don't know if you're you probably aware where, where of it. it. Doesn't matter. But they looked at like college students and how they form friendships and things of that sort. And initially, it has to do with proximity. You know, the people who you know you're assigned a room with or lives next door or is down the hall or somebody who is along your path as you go to classes and those are the people you tend to meet and become friends with and then you know you chat and when you chat you know, what do you ask for? You ask, you know, where are you from? And you start kind of getting to whether or not you're the same kind of people, whether or not you have the same kind of beliefs. I mean, even tonight, we had kind of a little bit of a fun with the current uh, politicians. <laughs> and so, you know, you, you know you, you're on the same page. And, and what happens is that creates a kind of a warmth, because if there's one bond we know, and that similarity leads to attraction. So when you realize is that even your friendships are going to be partly based on these kinds of similarity, y- you can end up with um, a bubble that extends way beyond childhood but throughout life. Mm-hmm. And the fact is, is that we're all more comfortable when we're talking to people who with whom we agree, mm-hmm. particularly at a deep level of uh, values that we share. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so... All of that essentially conspires to have most of our interactions with like minded people. Mm-hmm. And that is back to the, probably, I think, the most powerful phenomenon in social psychology, which, as I said in a talk I heard last night, I think they didn't fully appreciate how powerful it was. But if there's one thing we know, and that's that if you get a group of people, who are basically like-minded, they orient the same way. They may be different in specifics, Mm -hmm. but they orient the same way. After discussion, Mm -hmm. that group and those individuals become more extreme in that direction. That's the group polarization. And it started out back in the 60s with work on the risky shift. So what they found was that groups were riskier than individuals. But then they noticed that there were some groups in which they were more cautious than the individuals. Mm -hmm. And finally, the insight, plus lots and lots of other studies, is what they found is that if if the individuals all oriented toward risk, that discussion made that group and them more more risky. If they oriented toward more caution, say it was kind of a, uh, everybody saw it as a very risky decision, that discussion exacerbated that direction. You get people who are basically racist, Mm -hmm. and what happens after discussion, they become more racist. Mm -hmm. Uh, some of the studies were done in France. In, in those days, the, the students were some, somewhat, they, for quite a while, because I lived there for quite a while, is that um, they were anti-American and pro-de-Gaul, for example. After discussion, they became more anti-American and more pro-de-Gaul. So I mean, the phenomenon, it almost doesn't matter what the specifics are. The insight came from realizing that it's a general phenomenon. And if you put that back on living in bubbles and talking to the like-minded, you essentially extremize the, your groups and yourselves, by that's, by an extension of that same phenomenon.
1: So it amplifies the norm. It pulls it into a more extreme form, which I think we could probably all agree we're experiencing mm-hmm. at, at a national mm-hmm. level. Mm-hmm. From this, could you reflect a little bit on, on how can we consciously work to break that down? How do you invite dissent in when we are so carefully building our our tribe, our, our, our you know, sub- validation.
2: I don't have, a quick, the other ones I kind of, sort of answer because I've thought about them or I think they're answerable. I'm not sure, I I don't, well, clearly I don't have an answer to that. I mean, it wouldn't be waiting for me to say something before, you know, all of us who would like to see more civilized discourse and, and for thoughtful dialogue on different sides of the position, uh, you know, I don't know an, an easy answer to it. I, I mean, m- in a small way, I think what I hope is that when people really accept the premises we're talking about, mm-hmm. and that's a big profit from hearing um, dissenting voices. Right. I, then you hope that what will happen is, is that there is then a curiosity. And not just a tolerance because you think you're such a good person, mm-hmm. but rather that you know that, that you will gain from it. And so it doesn't just rely on your own uh, kind of curiosity. It's that no st- But again, I, I always feel like it's really important to put a kind of a boundary around this, though. It isn't any crackpot idea for, for a moment that comes in. Over and over again, what I emphasize in, in the book is that it needs to be an authentic difference of opinion. And so, if there's something they truly believe, you have to confront the fact that how can they believe that and clearly be so wrong? You don't have to accept it, you don't have to even think it's reasonable, but you have to allow it then to provoke the thinking in you that takes this divergent form. Because then you may come back to where you started, but it won't be exactly the same. It'll be more nuanced. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it'll have taken into account more things. I really so believe in it. And and you know, and philosophers, you know, like John Stuart Mill have long argued that dissent is, is absolutely mandatory really for a democracy. Mm-hmm. And it, it's partly that you have to have that combat of ideas in order to um, both make good decisions, uh, and I think to embrace the whole group. So it, it isn't necessarily a divide and conquer. It is one that makes the whole uh, actually much stronger. I think it's one of the real strengths of a democracy. Yeah. You know, But you have to practice democracy. You can't
1: act like an autocrat.
2: you know, and shut it down. So I
1: use the analogy of building a muscle, and it's obvious that practice is a part of this. It's it's a different framework, and it's being willing to try it and practice it. Um, I want to touch on a couple of other major themes, um, which each one I'm aware we could speak about for hours. Um, But one of them you mentioned already, and that is the extreme of the cult, or the groupthink, or the brainwashing. Mm -hmm. And if we could just look a little bit at this very interesting human phenomenon. Um, Obviously, to some extent, this is persuasion rather than um, encouraging strategic thinking. Um, But could you give us just a little more of a picture of what is going on there? You you used the example, obviously, of Jonestown in the book. um, But but what what does that tell us?
2: I think it tells us about the power of... of Of a culture, mm-hmm. whether it's in uh, a company, but in its extreme form in a cult, mm-hmm. um, of this consensus without challenge. what what cults do what Jonestown certainly did. I mean, of course, they had the advantage they took them all the way you know around the world, so that they they could physically remove them. Mm-hmm. But cults, you know, you could probably name ones that that you know of, but in in a greater or lesser extent, what they all do is... Actually, I, I wrote an article once on this of for, for corporate cultures because people use the term of cult-like corporate cultures. And they never like that word of cult-like because you can tell the executives wince because that doesn't sound like something they should be favoring. But that's what they're doing. Yeah. And, I, and I purposely use that term because I want them to wince because I want them to think about the fact that the procedures they're using are precisely the procedures of a cult. And they're very effective. If what you want is homogeneity of viewpoint, mm-hmm. you want them not to question, you don't want them to be going in divergent thinking and the ups and the downs and all that, you want them to be loyal, on the same page, and execute the idea and don't give you any lip. You know, it's the sort mm-hmm. of thing like, do what I tell you to do mm-hmm. and like it kind mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'll say this directly, it's, it's, it's an extreme statement at one level, but it's, it's really not that far off a reality. But what they, what cults do, and I think corporate culture sometimes will do as well, number one, they look for people who are likely to fit, namely likely to buy the message. So you probably wouldn't pick somebody who you know has a history of being a dissenter or a troublemaker, okay? <laughs> um, so they they do some selection, and there's some self-selection going on. The second thing that they do is that they almost always make sure that you interact with people who who are already fully on the same page and indoctrinated. Pulling
1: them into the norm. That's right. Mm -hmm. Some of them
2: actually, I mean, even some companies have formal socialization practices. Mm -hmm. They will have like their little company universities or even whatever, where they essentially teach you what our identity is, namely what we believe, what we stand for. And so they socialize you into the family, if you will. Again, you can see you can use different words that sound either nice or sound a little scary. But, there's, but the principle's the same. Mm-hmm. They then have all this interaction of the like-minded, which we know extremizes it, okay? We know even from the research I have in the book that, um, that when you hear consensus, it's unchallenged, that you start to look at it from their perspective. And that's what I kind of call the self, self-brainwashing so that you're now reading things that corroborate that perspective. If you have any doubts, you're, you're doing your own suppression of your doubts. And you're, because the whole thing is essentially that convergent thinking from their perspective. You get all that going on, and then in almost all of these cases, you get real punishment of dissent. I mean, you've heard of, uh, you know, there's different reports out about different cults, for example, where uh, people will be given harsh manual labor uh, for any kind of an expression of a doubt even. There are stories of, you know, like children even being, you know, publicly reprimanded for, again, you don't even have to really dissent. You can just express a doubt. Uh, it, it is monitored so carefully, and there's usually minders where they make sure that they tell on the other people, mm-hmm. you know, if they ever stray. Mm-hmm. What I'm getting is that the the whole thing is kind of a closed system, and it uses the principles of, selection, interaction, reinforcements, punishment of any dissent uh, to the extreme. And so, I mean, I I purposely chose examples for the book, if I could find them, that put a face on some of the issues. And Jonestown was one because I can remember getting up in 1978 and on the television was like 900 bodies on, on the ground from Jonestown. Uh, most of which Mm -hmm. self-inflicted some apparently were given a little help if they you know resisted I thought a certain irony the Jones himself apparently didn't drink the Mm Kool-Aid it was uh, arsenic laced I think Um, it it, it was from a gunshot wound Uh, I mean you you get all of those sorts of of, um, uh, they're not amusing but they you know yeah ironic yeah that's the better word so, I mean, I, I think that's what they use, and I think companies many times, there are books out, uh, certainly there was a, uh, one book out about studying companies, finding that the companies that use these kinds of techniques, kind of cult-like c- cultures, uh, were high-performing. Mm-hmm. And, and so, therefore, the message was essentially that this is a great way to get people kind of lockstep, you know, fully loyal um, it makes for happy campers and it makes for high productivity and so a lot of times that kind of a notion has actually been pushed as a blueprint for organizations
1: Mm -hmm. that bottom line again Mm -hmm. but you do you know to be a little more positive um you do also talk about developing a culture that Um, supports and encourages dissent. You talk about challenging some of our ideas around brainstorming from a a dissenter point of view Mm -hmm. and really challenging some of what we would consider to be business as usual. Mm -hmm. Um, So just a couple of highlights on how we can either internally or in our groups encourage dissent.
2: You you know, it's funny, because I was just doing a a, a piece for... um, well, uh, Wall Street Journal or, or Harvard Business Review or two that kind of like little you know kind of pitches of things, and, and it's it's funny because they they think that people already ex- at least now accept the fact that you want to hear from from all voices and that you want to invite dissent, mm-hmm. and uh, and then of course they'd like to know tips of how to. How to create it? I think often what I'm sort of struck by is that the rhetoric is there,
1: mm-hmm.
2: but I'm not sure they really want dissent. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, actually, a friend of mine, a colleague, Barry Staud, once written an article about somewhat similar but related to creativity, like why no one wants creativity. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's yeah, that's right, <laughs> and and it's um it's much the same way. I. This is, you know, my personal opinion about this, but that's what I'm doing tonight. Uh, I think, you know, they like the idea of if you have a really great idea, I ought to hear it. And they're aware of the fact that I might miss it if if I shut down any voice that's different. But they sort of assume that if it doesn't sound smart to them from the get-go, it's worth very little time. And most of the time is that if they're challenging what you believe, you're not going to accept it, and you're not going to think it's smart. Mm-hmm. You have to really realize is that, if, if you buy all the research, is that your thinking will have been changed and improved. Mm-hmm. But you won't see that at the get-go. In fact, if you're enlightened, you think it's because you're just a smart, enlightened person. You, you, you don't give credit to the dissent. So I think there's still a lot of education that needs to be done because people have to fully embrace that and really believe it in order to really welcome it, because the inclination is that's taking up time and it's annoying me kind of thing, and so therefore, I'm going to suppress it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think there is more, I think if they really want it, they can get clever in their own organizations to find mechanisms in order to achieve it. I mean, even in classrooms, for example, I often found myself um, number one, just flat outright making it clear that I really want to hear the differing voices. So if I hear someone, you know, they almost look like they want to say something, but they aren't, that's the one you say, okay, you clearly have an opinion, I want to hear it. Mm-hmm. And you make it clear that it's valued when they, when they speak up. I think the other thing is, I can remember years ago, um, I think I taught a course that had something to do with gender. Mm-hmm. And um, there were a lot of females in there, and there were a few kind of lone courageous guys who had, They clearly had some reservations. They they had, you know, still rather what we'd call traditional values and all that. But I thought, but you need to hear it. I mean, if you get it on the table, then you're going to have an honest conversation. But it took some pulling and protection and a certain kind of uh, almost um, shutting down of people who had found it too funny to ridicule him do you know i mean i think if i use as an example because i think leaders of groups can find many mechanisms with which to uh encourage uh the differing voices and to essentially cut cut back on any kind of uh persecution if you will for lack of a better word so i i I think that i don't think there's a one I, I don't think there's tips that everybody can use, but I do think that there are many mechanisms that don't even require a lot of thought mm-hmm. to, um, to encourage it, if you really believe it, because they can smell the difference. Yes. You know, is that if, a, if a, an executive says, oh, you can tell me anything, you know, I want to hear it, and then the first time somebody opens their mouth, all of a sudden they can tell that he, his, he tightens up, mm-hmm. he's annoyed, everybody knows, oh, heck, I'm glad I'm not that person that spoke mm-hmm. up. I mean, he's spoken volumes about where he stands. And I think there are things you can become aware of. Uh, I think there are ways you can improve uh, the likelihood of dissent. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you have votes that are anonymous right. to begin yep. with. So mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. much like in Twelve Angry Men, mm-hmm. you know, because they mm-hmm. effectively used when it was public and when it was private. Mm-hmm. You get very different phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Or things like the timing of of when you dissent. I mean, there's a there's a million nuances to this. And I think that when you start learning about group processes and thinking about them you can become fairly clever at using them if your goal seriously is to encourage dissent and to protect
1: it Mm -hmm. um this book takes us from uh 12 Angry Men, to political events, to international events, to cults, to Freud, uh, and really, (laughs) really um, invasion, persuasion, uh, really talks about the courage and the need for authenticity, uh, but with this profound impact on process, on decision-making, and on our thinking itself— through the dissenting or divergent voice. Uh, There are many, many things we could talk about, but what I would say is thank you for this. I know it has already had a real impact for me on watching Group Process and myself within Group Process and asking some and framing some new questions. So thank you, Charlene. I do encourage us all to read it and challenge ourselves as to where we stand on this and what we could maybe do to build that capacity to encourage or to dissent itself. I thank you. Thank you. you. Um, you've asked wonderful questions. I appreciate well, it's it. It's provoked me intensely. So um, <laughs> thank you very
0: much. <clears throat> You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.